The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we open God's word this evening, let's make sure we're in fellowship. So we'll have a few moments for silent prayer. Then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your sufficient grace that you have provided everything for us for life and godliness, that you have anticipated, foreknown every need that we will have. You've made provision for it, revealed all the information that we need in the Scripture so that no matter what we face, no matter what the test, adversity, prosperity, whatever the situation might be, we have a framework from your Scriptures that we can take and apply to any and every situation. Father, teach us to think biblically through the Holy Spirit who guides and directs us. Father, we pray that this time will glorify you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Last time, we're doing some application out of the life of Jacob. Jacob goes through this period of 20 years between the time he leaves the land and the time he returns to the land. 20 years of testing. And we see Jacob the conniver fleeing from his brother when he leaves the land. And when he returns to the land in Genesis 31 and 32, he has another uh, face-to-face encounter with God at a place that is named for that, the uh, Penile, which means the face of God, where he met God face-to-face. And there God changes his name to Israel, meaning the mighty prince with God, so that we see a transformation, spiritual growth that's taken place over these 20 years. And it's a good time for us to stop and reflect on how God worked in uh, Jacob's life in producing that growth. Because between chapter 28, when he leaves the land, and chapter 31, when he returns to the land, he has grown spiritually. And as I pointed out, he goes through people testing, just one of many ways God tests us, evaluates us, examines us. And I closed up last time by saying that we all face different kinds of challenges with people. And a lot of the frustrations that we all have in dealing with our fellow members of the human race is because we have unrealistic expectations. A lot of times we just don't take doctrine seriously. We actually expect people to be better than they are. So I wrapped up with some of these unrealistic expectations. Number one, my wife should, or husband should automatically know what I want in this situation. And how many times have we run into that, that you just get frustrated? Why didn't you know what I wanted? So we all of a sudden get into conflict. Second, we think that my employee or my employer, my student, my client, whoever it is, should be more responsible, more involved, more active. Because somehow what we're really saying underneath it is that their failure to do so, their failure to perform as they, we think they should, somehow reflects upon us. So that can produce an, an ongoing state of irritation toward that person. Uh, third, we get the idea that people can make us happy. This is extremely unrealistic. People can't make you happy. The only person that can make you happy is the Lord Jesus Christ, your relationship to God gives you an eternal perspective that allows you to have stability and contentment in life. But people, things, events, circumstances, emotions are not the source of happiness. It is only a relationship with God. To the degree that we think anyone or anything can make us happy, to the degree that we think that, it can make us miserable. So what you end up doing is enslaving your emotions, enslaving yourself to things, people, events, circumstances, that if they don't perform the way that you want them to, then you're unhappy. 
And so we put our focus on off of God and onto the details of life. Fourth, unrealistic expectation. We wake up approaching the day thinking, I should make it today without people testing. And, of course, there's always customer service. We'll have people testing every single day because we live in a world with fallen people. And then fifth, I didn't cover this one last time, we have this unrealistic expectation, this hidden assumption that people should just respond the way I think they should. In any circumstance, in any situation, however, whatever that is, we think they should act the way we think they should act, and when they don't, we get frustrated with them. So those are our unrealistic expectations, and the reality is that people are just people, and people are sinners. Every single one of us on this planet is fallen, and and no matter who they are, no matter whether they're a pastor, a theologian, a mature believer, or they're just some uh, unbeliever, atheist, anti-God, secularist, they're all sinners, and they're all fallen, and to the degree that they're letting the worst part of their sin nature dominate their life, they're going to be difficult to get along with, difficult to uh, live with, difficult to associate with. So we always have to remember that every person on the planet, parents, children, wives, husbands, friends, associates, co-workers, they all have the potential of hurting us in some way, making us feel bad, creating a conflict, and we have then to deal with it in terms of our own mental attitude, and we have to apply doctrine in order to do that. People can hurt us in many different ways. They can hurt us in ways that are real, where they intend to hurt us. They can also do things that, that they don't intend to hurt us. It's just that we perceive that it is rejection. We think that they have uh, done something to us. People can love us, and we enjoy that, and it feels good. It's a nice, warm, fuzzy. Or they can hate us. Or they can just absolutely minimize us and ignore us as if we don't exist. People can undermine us. They can attack us behind our back and slander and gossip and do all kinds of things. They can malign us. They can hurt us physically, and they can hurt us uh, emotionally. They can make us victims of crime and victims of their sin. But the model for handling all of this is always the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's not, we were laughing last night, it's not this superficial thing of what would Jesus do. Now that's not a bad question in and of itself to ask. But the problem today is that most people don't spend enough time studying the Scriptures to really know the person and character of the Lord Jesus Christ and His why he made the decisions that he made to be able to answer that question. And so too often it just is reduced to some sort of superficial, subjective uh, game where people have created in their own imagination their view of Jesus, and then they're trying to decide what that little mental idol would do in this particular situation. So it trivializes, too often it trivializes uh, Jesus and these circumstances. But we have to look at the mechanics of how Jesus dealt with things and his perspective. Uh, Last night, the last couple of days, I was in Denver, flew out Sunday after church to go to a a partial board meeting with Chafer Seminary. We, Arch Rutherford, uh, pastor of Coast Bible Church down in uh, Orange County, and George Meisinger and Mark Perkins, who's in Denver, and I met and spent some time together the last three days. And so last night we were sitting around after dinner laughing and joking about some of these things. We have to analyze who Jesus is and why he did what he did. We were thinking of difficult questions to ask people like, uh, well, let's say you're you know, a young teenager and you're uh, expected to go somewhere with your parents, but instead you go off to church and then your parents get all irritated with you. What should you do? Of course, we're referring to the time Jesus stays at the temple and he is engaged in conversation with the rabbis and the Pharisees, and Joseph and Mary are halfway home before they realize he's not with them. Now, he's not sinning and he's not disobedient, but you know you can certainly phrase the question in such a way that, that uh, you're going to trick people. So we have to have a profound 
understanding of who Jesus is, something that really digs into the Scripture, not this kind of superficial, uh, sentimental Jesus that is promoted in, in most churches and by most uh, Christian books. Jesus dealt frequently with all kinds of testing, especially people testing. He had to deal with his own disciples. And his own disciples really didn't understand what he was teaching, why he was telling them to do what he did, and and really who he was and what he was all about. His own family rejected him. None of his brothers or sisters believed on him till after the resurrection. He was rejected by the very people that he came to save, he, the nation of Israel. His enemies vilified him and slandered him. They distorted what he said that just because he, he ate with uh, tax collectors and prostitutes, they accused him of being a drunkard and a glutton. And he continued to spread rumors and lies about him. How did he handle all this? He handles it from the doctrine that's in his soul and by his relationship with the Holy Spirit. So that sets the precedent, that sets the pattern, the model for how Christians in the church age are supposed to live. The precedent for the Christian life today isn't the Mosaic Law. It's not going back to the Ten Commandments. It's not going back to Israel. It is looking at Jesus Christ and how he lived as the pattern, as the model for the Christian in the church age. So how he handled those problems is our focus this evening. We always need a review of this, and as I was thinking about it in light of some things I said last week related to the uh, witnessing encounter with our Islamic friend and an incident that I'll tell you about that happened in Denver last night, uh, we'll press on to some perhaps a little new, uh, new insights in the whole purpose of testing and problem solving. But we have to lay the groundwork again, so we'll start off with reviewing. First point, let's review what a test is. See, a lot of times people don't really understand what we mean by a test. A test isn't something that you expect. It's more like a pop quiz. God picks the time and the place. We don't. And it often happens when we're just not ready for it. A test is, first of all, an examination or an evaluation of what we have learned. God teaches us something, we learn some doctrine, and then we immediately are involved in some circumstance or situation where we have to apply what we learned. It's that aggregate of divine viewpoint that accumulates in our soul. A test is not only an examination or an evaluation of the doctrine that we know, it's also an opportunity to apply the doctrine that we do know. A test may not be a difficult situation. It may be just an opportunity to minister, to witness, to serve the Lord in some way. And the test is how we're going to respond to that opportunity. So it's uh, not only an examination or evaluation, it's also an opportunity to apply that doctrine to a situation, an event, an experience in life with a view toward our service in the Christian life. I think that's something that's been missing in our understanding of an ultimate goal of the whole concept of problem solving and spiritual skills is where that's going in terms of our real position in Christ and our, our Christian service as royal priests and ambassadors. So that's an element I'm adding to this whole dimension here. Second, we pass these tests through the use of ten spiritual skills. These spiritual skills are things that we practice over and over again. The use of the word skill emphasizes learning the mechanics, just as a ballerina learns all the different mechanics, just a little move here, another move here, another move here, practices it over and over again, then begins to put them together. And as time goes on through practice and practice and more practice, it ultimately becomes a very smooth movement. It becomes second nature to her, enters into muscle memory, and it she is able to produce something of grace and beauty and art. And so we emphasize this aspect of skill. Skill involves repetition. It involves practice. Now, there are different kinds of tests, and there's all manner of ways in which we can categorize tests. 
And I've sat on the airplane coming back today just writing down, just sort of brainstorming all the different kinds of tests and different ways we can categorize these tests. There's people tests, and there's all kinds of people tests. There's authority tests. There's family tests. There's marriage tests. There's work tests. There's tests with friends. There's tests of coworkers, uh, romance. Marriage. All these involve tests. Anytime you're involved with people in any conceivable human relationship, there are different forms of people tests. Then we have system tests. Now, system tests often involve people. And system often involves like the way in which your company might work or the school you go to. They have certain policies, certain procedures. Maybe you're in the military. You do things a certain way. If you're a Marine, you do things a certain way. If you're in the Army, that's just the way you do it because that's the way you're taught to do it. And that's the system. You may not think it makes sense. You may think there's a better way. You just you have that system that you have to deal with. The subcategory of that is bureaucracy. And it can be anything from a government bureaucracy to a, uh, to a business bureaucracy. People who don't really care about their job, it's just something they do every day, and yet you want some action and nobody really cares. And you get all upset and nobody cares. All they care about is getting their paycheck. And we live in a world where that is true more and more because we've, we've gotten away from the whole concept of a Protestant work ethic and, a, and an understanding of why we work other than just to get a paycheck. It's all become very utilitarian. We have health tests. We, have, we can have all kinds of crises in life from weather tests. Uh, we anticipate another active hurricane season. Aren't we all excited about that? And... Um, there can be financial tests. We can go through an, uh, any anything can happen. If there could, another attack on the scale of 9/11 could have disastrous consequences economically. Gas prices go up. Everything else goes up. People can lose their jobs. Uh, we can get involved in a more intense military action that takes place on our own soil. There can be political disasters that take place. All kinds of things. Another way to categorize tests is tests of service. New category. Tests of service. This is related to our priesthood and our ambassadorship. These are tests that re- relate to prayer, study of doctrine, putting a priority on our relationship with God. The priesthood aspect has to do with our relationship to God. The ambassadorship aspect has to do with our relationship to other believers and to the world. So we have tests related to prayer and the study of the Word, making it a priority, meditating on God's Word, uh, worship. Then we have tests of ambassadorship relating to giving, related to evangelism, testimony before men, before angels. All these are different uh, ways that we can be tested, different opportunities. How are we going to use our time? How are we going to use the money that God gives us? How are we going to use the talents and the resources and spiritual gifts that God has has given us? So we have all kinds of different tests, and we never know when they're going to come. And that's picked up in the verb that we have in James 1-2, count it all joy, my brethren, whenever you encounter, and it means literally to fall into various tests. It's sort of like walking down the trail of life, and then there's a grass-covered pit, and we just fall into it. We don't we expect solid ground to be there and we just drop through the ground into a situation, a circumstance that we never expect to encounter. And that's why it's a test. Last week I talked about the fact that that uh, I was out having dinner and ran into an acquaintance and was invited over to their table and there was a man there who was a Muslim and we uh, got into a discussion, a witnessing opportunity. Last night when we were in Denver, uh, Arch Rutherford, who's a pastor down in Southern California, was there. And Arch is a real outdoors enthusiast. He's about 60, and he's a biker. He got his big Harley back at home. And he had uh, gotten on eBay to buy a dirt bike for his wife. And uh, I was just thinking how my wife would respond if I bought her a dirt bike. 
Anyway, so it turns out that the guy who was selling this dirt bike was in was in Denver. So rather than going through all the transportation issues and everything, because he's going to be uh, taking a sabbatical this year and he's going to be going to, through Denver with his RV, he'll be pick it up. And so he wanted to buy it and then take it over to a friend's to store it until he could pick it up later in the summer. So we were going to a a meeting last night that was over in that part of town. So we went over there, and he bought the bought the dirt bike and then rode it to the meeting at this church. We went to a computer uh, Bible program demonstration, the Lagos program that will be here in another two weeks. And um, afterwards we came out, and Arch wanted to get a little head start because dirt bikes can't get out on the freeway, so he had a long way to go to get back to uh, Pastor Perkins' house. So he got on his bike and headed out, and about ten minutes later we went out and got in the car, and as we were headed to the car, the skies opened up, and it just poured rain, and the wind picked up, and it was just bending these trees. And we thought, oh, poor Arch. Oh, this is this. I made sure my cell phone was on, expecting a call any moment, and we left, and we drove home. We kept thinking, it, we thought it was ahead of it, but it just, we're in this storm all the way home. Oh, well, Lord will take care of Arch. So we got home, and about 10 minutes after we got there, and this was like 25 miles away back to where Pastor Perkins lives, and we got there about 10 minutes later, uh, Dr. Meisinger was walking up towards the front door and said, Hey, there's a truck in the driveway. Somebody brought Arch home. So we went out there, and they unloaded the bike, and Arch had gotten about two miles from the from the uh, meeting place last night, and all, the weather broke, and so he pulled into a gas station. And he was about to call us when a young man, looked like he was about 30, pulled up and offered him, said, offered him a ride. said, I'll give you a ride. Arch said, no, no, I'll call some friends. I'll pick them. No, 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 I want to help you. I'll give you a ride. I'm a biker. This is bad weather. You don't have to go. He said, Arch said, i got to go 25, 30 miles from here. It doesn't matter. I'll be glad to take you there. So they loaded up his bike on the back of the truck. Arch got in, and it turned out this young man was a Mormon. Of course, we all commented he was working his way to heaven, and he was. You know, they got to do their good deeds. So Arch immediately relaxed because he knew that this guy wasn't going to slit his throat and leave him by the side of the road. So that gave him an unexpected opportunity to witness to this young Mormon and to give him and to give him an opportunity to explain his views on things and then to explain the cross and. And Christ, and the guy didn't accept Christ. That's not the end of the story. But you never know. And that just isn't for pastors. Remember, Ephesians 4, 11 and 12 says that the purpose of the gift of evangelist and pastor and teacher is to equip the saints. Who are the saints in this room? That's y'all. That's all, all y'all. That's all of us. The purpose for the pastor is to equip the saints to do the work of the ministry. See, that can happen to you, and it can happen to me, it can happen to any one of us, and we never know when it's going to happen. And are we prepared to intelligently present the gospel to someone? I mean, like most Mormons, this young man had just two or three years ago come off the mission field as a Mormon. Every young Mormon man has to go on the mission field for two years. He spends the first year as, as sort of the uh, novice, and then he's the trainer the second year. And this is, they, they know how to respond to every question, everything that you say as a Christian. They're taught this. You're not taught that. Isn't that how slack we are as Christians? Just go out and witness. You'll, you'll figure it out. You know, the Holy Spirit will lead you. And I'm always amazed at the, the, the cults and the false religions, how they train people. The, the Jews memorize the Old Testament. I can't get most people that I'm involved with to memorize 20 verses. And yet, Jews will memorize the whole Bible, whole books of the Bible in Hebrew. And, um, and we have, uh, they get trained in how to deal with Christians and they, when they knock on doors and they'll say this and you say that and they'll say this and you say that and they memorize all of this and they get trained in it and, and sent out and we just say, you know, here's a few other things about the gospel. Go, you'll, you'll witness. And most people get out there and they're scared to death and they don't. We're honest with each other. We just feel like, well, I'm not prepared. All of a sudden, I've got the opportunity, but wait a minute, what did, what did, what did Robbie say? Gee, I can't remember. And we just freeze up. 
And we have to be trained over and over again to be able to take care of these opportunities because they are tests. That's just another form of a test. Are we ready? Do we know enough about what different people say and believe so that we can honestly and accurately explain the gospel? It's great to be able to give them what the gospel is. But sometimes we're engaged in a conversation with someone. We're not talking to a post. And when they come back and they say, well, I just believe this, well, what are you going to say? Just repeat some Bible verse? Well, that's good, and the Holy Spirit can use that. But if you look at how Paul and Peter and others in the New Testament interacted with unbelievers, they did, just didn't pull out their gospel gun and shoot them with a verse. They were engaged in conversations with them. So it's, if all you can do is give them a verse... That's all you can do. But we ought to be able to do more. And we certainly know enough to where we should be uh, expecting uh, ourselves to do more. So we have these spiritual tests that come along. And 1 Corinthians 10.13 tells us that there is no test. The word there is temptation, but that means a test. There's no test taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful. And that's really the substance of what we're saying is no matter what we encounter, we can always go back to the faithfulness of God and the sufficiency of Scripture to handle any situation. But we have to know the content. We have to know the content. When you get, especially when you get in tough situations, when you get a tough situation, you're a parent and there is a child that is dead, or you are uh, standing over the grave of a sibling or a friend, or uh, you're called in the middle of the night and your 20-year-old is in jail for drunk driving or selling heroin or whatever it is, when we go through these deep, tough situations in life, what gets us through them isn't all the singing and good times and holding hands and the fellowship that we've had. Not that that's wrong, but that's not what gets us through the tough times. What gets us through the tough times is the content of what we're taught in Bible class, that's what gets you through tough times, not, not those good times that you had, not the, the songs that we sing. It is the, the content of the Word of God that gets us through those difficult, difficult times. It focuses our minds so that rather than being emotional, we can be thinking about what's going on. 1 Corinthians 10.13 says there's... Let's see if I have a passage up here. I don't. There's no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful and will not allow you to be tested above what you are able. Now, that doesn't mean, there's a myth that goes around, well, God's not going to test you beyond your ability. But I think that if we look at this verse and we look at how ability is dealt with in the Scripture, ability is dealt with by the fact that you as a believer have the potential of the Holy Spirit who indwells you, and you have the Word of God, potentially. You won't be tested above that. It's not saying that you get, and in a superficial reading, it sounds this way, that if you encounter a test, then you must have the, the ability to handle that particular test. Well, I think that's there. There's many people go through diff, who are just brand new believers, and the next week they have a major crisis in their life. And you, you look at it and you go, man. They don't even have any doctrine. And I'm sure glad that didn't happen to me. I've got a lot of doctrine, but I don't know how I would handle that. It's the potential. We all have the same Word of God, and we all have the same Holy Spirit, and we can all handle that. That's the potential, and that's what is being talked about here. God will not allow you to be tempted beyond your ability. The Word of God is that ability. And will, with the temptation, with the test, make a way to escape... That is, not to get out away from it, but to stay under it, that we can be able to bear it. And so we have to understand these basic principles and how to use these skills. So the third point is that the use of the spiritual skills is not an end in itself. I just want to pause at that clause. The, end, the use of the spiritual skills is not an end in itself. It's like a lot of people get the idea that confession of sin is an end in itself. Well, all you're doing is getting back, you're spending your Christian life getting back in fellowship. But you see, you're supposed to be going somewhere. There, there's direction. People have often commented that if you don't know 
what your target is, you certainly won't hit it. And see, most people don't have a target. They're just out there randomly, okay, I, I need to confess my sins to get back in fellowship, but that's all they're doing is sort of getting out of fellowship and getting back in fellowship and getting out of fellowship and getting back in fellowship. They don't understand that getting back in fellowship is a means to recovery to go somewhere. It's not just going out the front door and walking in the back door. See, most people are doing that. They're walking out the front door of the house, walking around, walking in the back door, and walking out the front door, walking around, walking in the back door. And it's just a cycle that goes on. And they're not spending enough time in the house to finish building the house. And the goal is to get the house finished. So the use of the spiritual skills is not an end in itself. It's not an end in itself just to learn them and to do them. But the, it's the means through which the, God the Holy Spirit is going to produce spiritual growth and maturity for a purpose. That spiritual growth and maturity isn't the end in itself. It is designed for a purpose of serving the Lord. So we go to four, point four. We have five basic spiritual skills. Now, not all of these are part of the Old Testament. I'm throwing that in because we're studying Jacob. Now, Jacob didn't have access to all five of these basic spiritual skills. He had access to, to, uh, to four of them. But all five of these are part of your package. And when we master these, it, it, it's the, the more advanced spiritual skills, the more mature spiritual skills kind of automatically fall out because the more we practice the basics, the more we move right into the advanced spiritual skills. I'll show you what I mean in just a minute. Fifth point, we need to think, not just react emotionally. We have to develop an ability to think under pressure. When we get in a situation, you stop and say, okay, make sure I'm in fellowship. Okay, think about what promises might apply to this situation if it's witnessing that, that God the Holy Spirit is the one who's convicting them of, of sin and righteousness and judgment. And so we can rely upon God the Holy Spirit to be doing His part, that He will recall certain things to my mind so that I can relax and know that, that I didn't get thrown. Arch didn't get thrown in that car with that, Mor- uh, with that Mormon last night by chance. That's not just something that happened in in a universe of chance that God uh, organized those circumstances to put him there because that man needed to have the seed of the truth planted in his soul. And who knows who will come along later on and water that, if it will ever bear fruit or not. But the same thing happened last week, that God arranges these circumstances. And if I, didn't, I or Arch did not avail myself of that, then we just miss out on the privilege and opportunity of serving the Lord in that situation. God's going to get the information to the individual that they're positive. But we miss out on the privilege and the blessing of being part of that operation for God to work with us and to serve the Lord that way. So we have to develop an ability to think under the pressure of the adversity of the moment because the test will come when I need to be somewhere. I'm not ready for this. I need. To, I just wanted to relax tonight. I didn't want to have to deal with a witnessing situation. And I just wanted to eat dinner. You know, we come up with all these things, but the situation, God chose the time, the place, and the situation related to that particular test. Now, I use two words in here that are familiar to many of you. Redefine them again. And first is adversity. Adversity is the outside pressure of events or circumstances or people, as well as the pressure of our own emotions and sin nature. That's internal. So how many times do you, do you don't answer this? How many times do you have sinful thoughts or ideas or lust patterns, whatever they are, that just pop up from inside your own soul, from the source of your own sin nature? It's not an outside pressure. It is an inner pressure from your sin nature to sin. So adversity is not only the outside pressure of events, circumstances, and people, but also pressure from our own emotions, anger, bitterness, uh, fear, worry, the inner pressure that comes from our own sin nature. And we have a choice how we're going to respond to that. We can be in a situation and become fearful, but then the test is are we going to 
to act on the fear or are we going to choose to uh, apply biblical promises to the fear and move out in trust and the, the, the faith rest drill. So adversity can come from external pressure or it can come from internal pressure from our own uh, emotions and our own sin nature. Stress is the result of the internal reaction in our soul to the outside pressure, just like when they take stress test to a, let's say, a steel beam. They put it under a tremendous amount of external pressure in order to reveal if there are any flaws in the metal, any stress, what they call stress fractures, any uh, almost invisible uh, fractures within the metal, which would mean that it couldn't withstand the weight that was eventually going to be put upon it. So it's that outside pressure that often reveals the flaws and the weaknesses in our own soul and our own ability to handle circumstances. And we fail the test and we say, well, you know, I need to work on that. I need to learn the doctrine there and I need to concentrate a little more and maybe I need to pray about how I respond in those circumstances so the Holy Spirit can use the doctrine and produce some growth in that particular area. Five basic stress busters. Some new new charts. These things build on one another. They also interact. Uh, there's different ways we can chart these. I've just been playing with some different ideas. Confession is the foundation because confession just gets us back in the game. Confession isn't the game. Confession gets us back in the game. If you want to use a football analogy, when you sin, you get taken out of the game. When you confess and you put back in the game, but the issue is to spend maximum amount of time on the field playing the game, not out on the bench. So confession is simply a means of recovery so that we can get back into the game, and the game for the Christian life is spiritual growth toward maturity. On top of that, we have the walking by the Holy Spirit, and I really like that better than the filling of the Spirit because once you're back in fellowship, the filling ministry of the Holy Spirit is virtually automatic. You get back in fellowship, you don't do anything to be filled by the Spirit. You confess your sin, and you are. Walking by the Spirit is a much more active concept that moment by moment we have to choose to walk in dependence upon God the Holy Spirit. We studied this last Thursday night in Romans 8. We'll come back to it again this Thursday night in Galatians uh, chapter chapter 5, talking about the walk by means of the Holy Spirit, that moment-by-moment dependence on the Holy Spirit, which, of course, is a focus on His Word. So we have the faith rest drill. We grow by means of faith. Grow by means of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Grow in the faith and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Second Peter one three and four. We trust God. We trust those promises that are there in Second uh, Peter one three and four that God has given us these precious and magnificent promises. So we have to learn the promises, the procedures, trust God, and focus on on those. We've gone over this these things many times. We grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, Second Peter 3.18. We have to be oriented to grace and oriented to doctrine, the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. We see that emphasis on knowledge, knowledge, knowledge all the time because you can't operate on a vacuum of, of ignorance. So these build as we learn and grow in the Christian life, and they build that, that foundation for everything else that's developed in the spiritual life. So that's our foundation. Now let's look at these a little differently. See, this is what I would call a static diagram. But you see, you may come start coming to Bible class when I'm teaching on something related to, let's say, grace orientation or let's say something more advanced on love, uh, love for God. And you may learn a lot about that maybe initially, and you may not learn a whole lot about the faith rest drill or grace orientation until later on. So you, we come in at different times and we grow. We learn a little bit about this doctrine, that doctrine. We don't learn in this straight line. We don't first learn about confession and then walking by the Spirit and then the faith rest drill and then grace orientation. Life is dynamic. It's just a hodgepodge. It comes at us in many different directions in many different ways. But this is the logical relationship between these, these spiritual skills or these stress busters. There is a foundation. These five are the foundation for our spiritual childhood, what the Apostle John calls the technon, the spiritual infant in 1 John. 
the these three faith restoration grace orientation doctrine orientation all interrelate interrelate to one another faith restoration is the act of trusting the promise the provision of god grace orientation is understanding that what underlies all of god's uh, plan and policy for man is his grace Doctrinal orientation is learning the content related to all the different things. So these all interact. You can't really separate them uh, in, in the way we actually learn and apply the Word. Then we go through a period of spiritual adolescence where we learn to focus on God's future plan for our life, our personal sense of our eternal destiny. And this is what John refers to as the uh, neoniskoi believer, the young man, and 1 John 2.13, the adolescent believer. And then we have spiritual adults, the adult son of Romans 8.14, which we studied last Thursday night, that as many as are led, these are the, what, sons of God, the adult sons of God. This is where we uh, focus on our personal love for God as a motivation for spiritual growth, our impersonal love for all mankind, unconditional love for all mankind, and our occupation with Christ. He is the focus and pattern of our spiritual life. That should be Hebrews 12, too, in that, in that uh, block. These three interrelate. You can't really do one without the other. They all fit together. And the ultimate crowning point is inner happiness, James 1, 2, counting it all joy, because we know certain things. We understand what God is doing. Okay, this is still a static chart of how things are. Now, how does it work in reality? We'll go back to this basic chart. Our two circles, the circles on the left, indicate our eternal realities. We're in Christ at the instant of our faith in Christ. We're baptized by the Holy Spirit. We're indwelt by the Holy Spirit and all the other things that happen in relation to our, pers- our, our position in Christ. But the right side, the circle on the right side, is our, the temporal reality, our day-to-day experience of walking by the Spirit, being filled by the Spirit. When we sin, we're out of fellowship. We're controlled by the sin nature. We use 1 John 1, 9 to get back in fellowship where we're filled with the Spirit, walking by the Spirit, walking in the light, all of those terms. Now, what I want to do now is just focus on that right-hand circle. So in the next chart, we're going to start with that right-hand circle. That walking, being filled by the Spirit, walking by the Spirit, walking in the light, living according to the Spirit, all those terms we studied in Romans 8 last time. Now, how do you stay there? See, when you commit sin, you stop walking by the Spirit and you sin, Galatians uh, 5, uh, 5, 14 through 16, then what happens is you're out of fellowship. But the spiritual skills are designed to handle circumstances, situations, so that you stay inside the circle. So the circle is really wrapped by those spiritual skills. As we, we use those to stay in the circle. When we don't use them, we're we're gonna use the sin nature and we're gonna go out. We're gonna be out of fellowship and in carnality, walking in darkness. So you use these spiritual skills to stay in the circle. Now, what terms does the Bible use to describe that? Well, it uses the term abiding in Christ. See, the goal is not to go in and out, in and out, in and out. It's to stay, abide. That's what it means to abide, to live, to uh, walk uh, in the light, walk by means of the Holy Spirit. It's all up to our volition. As soon as we choose to stop walking, to stop abiding, then we're out of fellowship. Then we have to uh, use 1 John 1, 9. We get back in the light, and we use the spiritual skills to stay there. But what happens while we're staying there? See, when we stay there, the Holy Spirit's working to produce maturity. But is that just the end result, quote, maturation? It goes a little beyond that. Because the ultimate goal has to do with building that character of Christ who came not to be served, but what? To serve. So the ultimate goal then is related to 
what we'd refer to as Christian service in terms of our ambassadorship towards other members of the human race. This involves evangelism. This involves giving. This involves utilization of your spiritual gift to other members of the body of Christ in the local church. All of that is part of ambassadorship. Then we have the priesthood, our individual priesthood. The more we grow and mature, the more effective we are in those areas related to our priesthood and our relationship with God. It all relates to Christian service. That's what we're saved for, to actually be more engaged in things than just sitting and learning doctrine, creating a doctrinal notebook, knowing all these things. It ultimately culminates in doing certain things in terms of service, and we do it under the ministry of God the Holy Spirit, and we stay in fellowship by utilizing these these spiritual skills. Now, as all of that is going on, God the Holy Spirit is the one, of course, who is working in us to produce to produce maturity. Now, let's take a minute and look and see and think about how all this worked out in the life of Jacob. We don't want to forget where we're where we're uh, what we're studying, where we're going here. In the role and the interaction between Jacob and Laban, confession isn't mentioned in any of this. However, we do know that as a background and as a normative practice throughout the patriarchal period, they were uh, 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 they were offering burnt offerings to God and their sin offerings, and they understood the whole pr- principle of confession. Secondly, there's no mention of walking by the Spirit because there's no Holy Spirit and dwelling of the Holy Spirit for the believers in the Old Testament. But there is faith rest drill. And the object of the faith rest drill is always ultimately a promise of God, something that is stated in the Word. And so we have the specific promise that God made to Jacob back in chapter 28, uh, verse 15. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go. Keeping you is a word for protection and guarding. I will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to the land. So not only, and here we see how these problem-solving devices connect to one another. He has a promise. The promise has to do with personal protection and blessing while he's out of the land, but it also is goal-directed. Now, for us, we have a personal sense of our eternal destiny where God's taking us, but the destiny that God's taking Jacob to is what? It's the land. It's God's plan in time for bringing out a new nation through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and their descendants. So the promise is not only promise of day-to-day protection while he's outside of the land, the promise of provision and bringing blessing while he's outside the land, but also a promise of a future destiny that he will bring him back to the land for to fulfill God's promises to him and to his his father. So the faith rest drill not only relates to the promises God made to him, but also goes back to the promises that are in the Abrahamic covenant that God had promised to Abraham and to Isaac and then reiterated to him. He has to learn grace orientation because he's in a circumstance with dear old uncle Laban where he has to deal with Laban in grace. And if you're going to pass any people test, you're going to have to do it by understanding grace. Now, understanding grace involves a number of of different elements. One of those elements is humility. If we come to the cross, we have to be humble to recognize, I can't do anything to please God. God has to do it all. That is a position of humility. So grace involves humility. When Jacob is dealing with, when you're dealing in any position with an authority figure, someone in authority over you who's taking advantage of you, and you can't get out of the situation, then what you are learning is enforced humility. God is teaching you to be humble and to recognize that God is the one who ultimately has to deal with the situation. There's not a thing that you can do about it. So you have positions of enforced humility where you're in circumstances, you're working with people, you're in an authority situation, you're in systems where there's not a thing you can do to get out from under it. And you may have to be there for five years, ten years, fifteen years, twenty years like Jacob or longer. And you just can't get out from under that. 
As you go through that, you will learn genuine humility. The picture we see of Jacob, by the time we get to the end of this, is a man who has learned humility. He certainly doesn't have any signs of humility back there when he's cheating Esau out of the blessing, or he's deceiving Isaac to get the, uh, to get the birthright, or any of those things. But we see that later on in his life. As he learns, as he develops humility, what he's developing is a relaxed mental attitude so that by the time he, the, the test arrives where he's going to, he gets revelation from God to go back to the land, he's thinking very clearly and he has a well thought out plan for handling the situation. He calls uh, for Rachel and Leah to come out and he explains what's going on, lays out his case, makes a strong case. Later on he'll repeat the same case to Laban when Laban unjustifiably uh, charges him with stealing his flocks and herds so that he has has objectivity. He's not reacting in emotion anywhere through this because he has learned to relax in the promise and provision of God. He has true humility. So he the grace orientation leads to handling uh, people testing. He's learned to trust in God. He, he was cheating God earlier, and now God deals with him as grace, so he learns to deal with Laban in grace, not in anger resentment like Rachel does. He's not out for revenge, but Rachel is. So there's that contrast contrast there. Then we have doctrinal orientation. He learns that God does have a plan for his life. He is going to bring him back to the land, and he has to orient his thinking to what God's plan is and what God's agenda is. And He's been away from home for 20 years. Remember, his mother, Rebecca, loved him dearly and was protecting him and she thought, and in her manipulations, she's she's trying to get him to get the birthright, and it ends up in him leaving, and she is dead now. She never saw him again. So let, Jacob learns through all of this that God has his plan, and he has to do things the right way in order to uh, have the full blessing that God intends for him. So chapters, all these chapters set up in the Jacob... Laban conflict, a real pattern that all of us can learn from in applying the principles of the, of the stress busters to people testing and any other kind of testing. Now, next time, we're going to finish up our look at how this works itself out and how they resolve their differences, and then we'll come back to his return to the land and encounter with Esau. He's scared to death of what Esau is going to do to him because the last time he was there, Esau wanted to kill him. And remember, there's no telegraph, no telephone, no cell phone. Nobody's told him anything. He has had no communication. So he thinks Esau is still ready to kill him. Let's bow our heads and close in prayer. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study your word this evening. Pray that we might be encouraged by your faithfulness. You've provided everything for us for life, for spiritual life, and that all we need to learn is the your word, and to trust that God the Holy Spirit is directing uh, the circumstances of our lives and that he is the one who empowers us and produces spiritual growth in our lives. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.